This is Anchored in Christ, the sermon podcast that gives you hope in the gospel as an anchor for your soul. Brought to you from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Well, since we have been engaged in a series called Living the Lazarus Life, we have walked around the story of the healing of Lazarus from now many different angles. Today, we're actually going to do a bit of a backstory as we probe why was the need for this resurrection. In other words, what is the problem for which this resurrected Lazarus life is the answer? Today, I invite you to listen to two verses from John 11 as we go back to our text yet again, and then a story from the third chapter of the book of Genesis. So here again from Lazarus. When he had said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And then back to Genesis chapter 3. We've just had the creation story. We've had the creation of humanity. We've had man and woman together in the garden. And now comes this story. What's the problem? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, And that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the time of the evening breeze and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden but the Lord God called out to the man and said where are you and he that is Adam said well I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself he said who told you That you were naked. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, well, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit 
from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, well, the serpent tricked me and I ate. Let us pray. Lord, may your word come to us in such a way that we begin to grasp what is the backstory of all of our lives. And having seen it, may we run to you because we need you. Oh, Lord, we really need you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So what is the problem? We ask this every time we get in a traffic jam on the Mass Pike, or we ask this when we are in an airline delay. What's the problem? Where is the problem? When we have aches and pains, we might go to the doctor. Where's the real problem in this? As our country grieves right now and reels in racial pain, maybe finally we're asking about that. What's that problem? And as we think about our spiritual life, do you realize we actually need to ask what's our problem? What's the one thing that is actually not allowing me to be the person God created me to be? Is it education? Is it better looks? Is it more poise? Is it more money? Is it greater experience? What, what is it? What's the problem? Today, I want to help you see in this passage the most significant problem we ever face. It's the problem that Lazarus had. It's the problem that Mary had. It's the problem that Martha had. Nicodemus had it. Peter faced it. Nicodemus had it. Peter faced it. Theologians call this problem the fall. You just heard the story in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve. Did you catch... The primary problem that flows out of this story? Well, let's look at it, and I'm going to give you six different things to notice in this text. And really, one of those is in the text just preceding. We start with creation. That's the first thing to notice. In creation, you were created to be in relationship with God. That's what we learn in Genesis 1 and 2, and in effect, in chapter 3, it's the story of creation, it's the story of the creation of humanity, and it's the story of creation of humanity in relationship to God and in relationship to each other. Relationships are at the core of creation, and they are a reflection of God's very nature. This is Trinity Sunday, the Sunday we remember again God is a relational God. So, you were created to be in relationship. But thing number two in this text starts out in the first verse of the third chapter. Now the serpent. Now the serpent was more crafty than any animal the Lord God had made. The word crafty does not suggest macrame. It does not suggest scrapbooking. It suggests malicious trickery like the wily coyote. We don't know much about this serpent. We don't know where it comes from. It just appears. There was no particular note of it in chapter 1 or 2. It comes to Adam and Eve without a name tag and without a business card. The serpent functions 
like the entity Jesus calls the devil. See, the word devil comes from a Greek word, diabolos, that is actually the same word in Spanish, diabolo, and it literally means to throw something through something, like throwing the head of an axe through a piece of wood, and it splits it in two. So the devil's job description is right there in his name, the splitter, splitting us from God, eventually splitting us from each other, splitting us even from ourselves. In the famous story of the parable of the prodigal son, the son comes home only when he comes to himself, as if he's been apart from himself. So when you see the function of this serpent in this, this serpent in this chapter, you realize, ah, there is some kind of relationship between this serpent and the force we know of as the devil. The opposition, there is opposition in the universe to the rule of God that is trying to split us from God. You just sang about it in Martin Luther's hymn. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, the prince of darkness grim, the ancient foe, all of those references in that hymn were about this figure or this team of figures. We're made for creation and something's trying to ruin the relationships. Thirdly, notice the intrusion of slander. It's interesting that the Old Testament word is Satan. And that word literally means the accuser or the slanderer. So the servant poses a question, a deadly question. Did God really say you must not eat, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, the question highlights restriction. And it implies that God is actually perhaps the captain of the no-fun club. The question throws Eve because she, and often we, don't actually know what God has said. She's not sure whether God has said that exact thing or not. You see, the average churchgoer today really doesn't know that much about what God has said. The average churchgoer can only name four of the Ten Commandments, and those tend to be the most juicy of the Ten Commandments. Commandments. Do we know what God has said? You see, God had said, you may freely eat from every tree in the garden, but limit yourself from one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what God had said in chapter 2. But Eve is not sure. And Adam, who is said to be right next to her, doesn't seem to remember either. The splitter wants you and me to believe that if we follow God, it will turn out badly. If you follow God, you will end up somewhere you don't want to go to do something you don't want to do, and it will be uncomfortable. That's the whole slanderous temptation. But then we get number four to the real temptation. The core of the problem. 
Because after the introductory line, this is where the trouble begins. Eve, Eve responds that God is not like that. God has permitted most things in the garden. She remembers there's one tree in the middle of the garden. You shouldn't even touch it, which God had not said, or you'll die. The serpent counters with this provocative statement, you will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's the bait. Mark it in your Bibles. The bait is for you to be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, knowing is a huge word in the original language. It's the word yada. If you've watched Star Wars, Yoda undoubtedly is somehow related to yada because it means to know. But it means to know on many different levels. When you get to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, Adam knew his wife Eve, she conceived and bore. No. But you can see there it's, it's creative. It's, it's procreative. The word is a suggestion that the way you get to be like God is that you get to create your own good and evil. That's the temptation. That's the bait. That's the problem. Because at one level, we think we could do a better job of being Lord of our life than God would do. Because if we follow God, the implication is it's going to be bad. So why don't we follow ourselves? Why don't we make our own list of good and evil? And actually, when I talk to people who are not Christians, that's mostly what they've done. They will tell me, I don't really need God because you see, I'm a good person. And then they will normally tell me what's on their list. I don't do this. I don't do that. I do do this. It's usually a short list. They're not actually keeping it as well as they think. They're not actually keeping it as well as they think. But they are Lord of their life. So what's Eve going to do? Is she going to say, no, I'm not going to do that? No, in fact, she begins to analyze the fruit. She sees the consequences she does kind of want to be Lord of her own life. Let's give it a try. So she took it. She ate of it. She gave some to Adam who was with her. He ate of it as well. Have you and I eaten the same fruit? Have we taken the bait? What you heard Sarah read in Ephesians 2 and what you would hear in the book of Romans is that somehow all of us are connected to this act of rebellion. That somehow, like a virus, it has been passed down generation to generation. It's our root problem. It's your problem. It's my problem. It's our problem. And that, that we want to be Lord of our life. You may remember the great Burger King commercial of the 70s. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce. Special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve you today. And then the concluding line was, have it your way. You remember the great Frank Sinatra song? Perhaps his most famous song, I did it my way. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity notes our core problem. He says, now what sort of hole has man gotten himself into? Well, he tried to set up on his own, to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man isn't simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He's a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms 
surrendering, saying you're sorry, realizing you've been on the wrong track and ready to start life over again on the ground floor, that's the only way to get out of our hole. That's why today our prayer of confession will be after the sermon instead of before. Because maybe in a grander, more profound way, we want to say, I don't want to be Lord of my life any longer. I don't think I'm big enough to pull it off. Because you see, the consequences that flow down, and that's the fifth point of this, the consequences that flow down out of this action is that immediately Adam and Eve want to be Lord of their lives and do it their way, and they don't want it to be in relationship to God. In the end of chapter 2, they were naked and unashamed. Now they're ashamed of being naked. Suddenly they want to hide behind fig leaves. They hear God taking a walk in the garden, and they want to hide. They don't yet know that there is no place you can go to get away from the presence of God. They, are, they feel shame. Guilt acknowledges I've done something wrong. Shame is more pervasive. Shame believes I am something wrong. Shame enters our lives in a variety of portals. Sometimes it's through abandonment, sometimes via painful experiences, sometimes through evil acts done to us, ultimately through this very act of rebellion passed down in this virus. We carry with us shame. At the core, we don't approve of ourselves. It's the very opposite of what God intended. When he created us, he says, that's really good work, good job. But instead, we feel like there's something wrong and we try to bury it, we fight it, we deny it, we drown it. But it will show itself in our own hiddenness. The twin of shame is always hiding. It's the deep desire to cover up and make sure no one knows the real me. Hiddenness is huge around churches where we don't really acknowledge to one another who we really are. And then if we ever get caught, we want to blame. So Adam blames the woman, the woman blames the serpent a desire to somehow cast it on someone else. And eventually what happens is separation. They lose their place in the Garden of Eden. They are sent from God. A friend of mine wrote a song years ago about his own fallenness. And the final phrase of it was, the freedom that I won and the paradise lost. And that's what they lost. And from chapter 3 through chapter 11, you see the cascading effects of the fall. First shows up the curse between the genders. His desire is going to be for you and your desire is going to be to rule over him. That's where that problem comes from. That's not from creation. That's from the fall. Work becomes toil. It's not that work is part of the fall. We had work in the garden. It's that work becomes frustrating, agonizing. By chapter 4, the family fractures. By chapter 10, culture is fracturing. Huge impact we have there. By chapter 11, there's a racial fracture around language. An enormous issue. Even the problem we're experiencing today in this country with race traces itself all the way back to the fall. That's why Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that you heard Sarah read, starts off with this daunting analysis. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once lived. You see, what's the problem? We tried to be Lord of our own life and it got us in a spiritual tomb wearing grave clothes. And the tendency comes back even after our conversion. 
Eugene, Peter, Eugene Peterson said the self is persistent. Quietly, subtly, ingeniously, it will keep working its way back to the center. So lastly, the solution is the resurrection. The solution is the recreation. The solution is the gift that Jesus gave us on the cross that we celebrate at this table. Because verse 4 of chapter 2 that Sarah read starts with this incredible contrastive statement, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive just like Jesus brought Lazarus back to life. Adam and Eve tried to be their Lord. But God started to redeem them even that day when he asks Adam, where are you? He could have given up on them. He could have sent them away. He could have scoffed at them. He could have shamed them. He could have spanked them. But instead he searched for them. And he's searching for all of us who are on this journey of being Lord. Adam, where are you? Eve, where are you? Singleton, where are you? Trace it through the Bible and God is always looking. He found Adam in the garden. He found Abraham in Haran. He found Jacob by the river Jabbok. He found Moses way down in Pharaoh's land. He found Moses at a burning bush. He found Rahab in a harlot's house. He found Jonah in the belly of a whale. He found Gideon hiding in a wine press and Elijah hiding in a cave. He found David through the prophet Nathan. He found Jeremiah when he was too young. He found little Daniel in a lion's den. He found Nicodemus at night and, and a Samaritan woman by a well. He found a prodigal son in a pigsty and Zacchaeus up a tree. He found Peter on a fishing trip and Saul on the road to Damascus. And he found Lazarus in a tomb. God knew where to find, find us every time and he's still searching. You were created to be in relationship with God. And something has lured you from that and split you from God. It's the problem of your life and it impacts the problems of this world. When we're trying to be Lord of our life, eventually we're going to make a colossal mess. But God, Ephesians 2.4, is calling you home, searching for you, calling you even by name. Where are you? Have you laid down your arms and stopped the rebellion? Remember what Luther wrote. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, but we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And that one word is Jesus. Jesus. Jesus brings you home. Jesus brings you out of the tomb. Jesus is there for you. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport, Massachusetts. If you'd like more information about our historic church, or you'd like to find out more about the gospel of Jesus, please visit our website at oldsouthnbpt.org. The peace of Christ be with you.